Well, if you've got your Bible tonight, I invite you to turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Revelation. And we have been in a study of the seven churches of Revelation that are mentioned here in chapters two and three of the book. We've already considered three of the churches that are mentioned in the first part of chapter two, the church in Ephesus, in Smyrna, and in Pergamum. And tonight we'll consider a fourth church, the church in the city of Thyatira. Um, I don't know if you've read this book or not, but Dr. David Jeremiah, he's taught multiple times on the book of Revelations, written a lot of books, but one book that he wrote many years ago was a book entitled Escape the Coming Night. But in a chapter that deals with the seven churches, he sort of uh, gives a following illustration and applies it to the church at Thyatira. He says, suppose that a man was called into the office of his employer And as he sits down and the one-on-one meeting begins, his employer says, I've noticed that you are quite industrious. Uh, You work hard. You're very outgoing. And upon hearing this, the man perhaps thinks that maybe a pay raise is in order. You know, so he's, he's getting a little excited. But instead, the tone of the conversation changes And his employer says, nevertheless, I have something against you. I hear that you've been spending time with a woman who's not your wife. That is essentially the message that the Lord of the church gives to the church in the city of Thyatira. And even though there were some things that looked really good, praise God, my computer's working tonight. Can I get a witness? Even though there were some things that looked really good on the outside of the church, things were not what they ought to have been on the inside of the congregation. And so like the church in the city of Pergamum, uh, the church in the city of Thyatira had compromised with the culture. However, they went a step further and became accommodating of sin and false doctrine. So if the crisis at Pergamum involved a crisis of compromise, the crisis that's being dealt with in Thyatira is a crisis of accommodation. The church is actually accommodating the spirit of the age. And so this is a very important message, especially for the church in our time. Because the the letter to Thyatira reminds us that false ideas and sinful behaviors are not to be tolerated even when they exist under the banner of love and acceptance. And so compassion is never a legitimate excuse for doctrinal compromise. So with that in mind, uh, read with me beginning in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2. The scripture says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, 
but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with the rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now the city of Thyatira itself was the smallest of the seven cities that are mentioned in these two chapters. And yet, It's interesting to me that the letter that's written to the church in Thyatira is the longest of all of the seven letters. And so you would think, well, a small town like Thyatira, surely it doesn't have any problems. But evidently, it had major problems. And so the size of the church is not so much the issue to the Lord of the church. The issue is the integrity and the witness of the church. Sometimes people think, well, the bigger church must be more important to God. That's not necessarily the case. Because all churches, shapes and sizes matter to the Lord Jesus. And what he's passionate about concerning his church is the church holding forth with integrity the truth of the gospel. And so sometimes big problems can occur in small places. And that was exactly what was happening here in the city of Thyatira. Now, I mentioned last week that tolerance has become a buzzword really in today's culture. And yet, tolerance, as it's now referred to or defined in contemporary terms, means something than what it used to mean a generation or two ago. And so, tolerance, this is a virtue in today's secular society, not tolerance in the sense of the old definition of the term which is a principle that societies are often built upon. Uh, Back in the day, tolerance meant that even though you disagreed or you disapproved of someone's belief system, their values or their lifestyle, uh, you stuck to your own point of view and yet you accepted the rights of other people to believe and live as they chose. In other words, you didn't grab your pitchfork and riot against people who had different opinions. Well, nowadays, there's a new definition of of tolerance that has been widely understood that if you disagree with someone in their belief system or their lifestyle choice, then you are intolerant. So a secular culture such as ours, a pluralistic society such as ours, has bought into the idea that tolerance means that you have to accept not just the fact that other ideas and worldviews exist, but you have to accommodate those worldviews. You have to uh, essentially affirm those worldviews and belief systems. 
So again, I'm not for pummeling anybody with whom I disagree. But at the same time, I don't want to be pummeled simply because I disagree. I don't want to be canceled simply because I have a differing viewpoint than the rest of society may have on a particular issue. Nowadays, if you express any form of disagreement, you're labeled as being intolerant and you are guilty of some form of phobia. Well, the problem with those who disagree with an Islamic worldview, uh, you, you're Islamophobic. Or those who hold to a biblical sexual ethic and believe that homosexual practice is sinful, you are homophobic. These are the kinds of pejoratives and insults now that are thrown toward those who express any form of disagreement with the ideas of the culture at large. And so now, centuries-old Christian doctrine is regarded as discrimination. And so this kind of thinking exists, obviously, in so much of today's culture. There are segments of liberal Christianity where it exists. But long before our modern times, this kind of idea and ideology had crept into the church in the city of Thyatira. Now, I did mention the fact that of all of the cities mentioned in these chapters, the city of Thyatira was the smallest. And it fell into the category of those towns that kind of get caught in the shadows of their larger, more well-known neighbors. And those of us who live in High Point, we kind of understand what that's like. Uh, if you travel abroad and someone asks you where you're from, you say High Point, North Carolina, and someone says, well, where's that? You say, Greensboro, okay? <laughs> more people tend to know where Greensboro is than High Point, or they know where High Point is more so maybe than Archdale, that kind of thing. Well, Thyatira was 40 miles to the east of the city of Pergamum. You can see it there on the map behind me. Unlike Pergamum, it had no important temples. It wasn't an important political center. You might could think of Thyatira as being a blue-collar kind of town. Now, here's what that meant. It meant that most of the folks who made their living in the city of Thyatira they did so in the form of trade, uh, skill set, uh, trade guilds. Uh, we know more about Thyatira and the trade guilds that were in the city of Thyatira than any other city in Asia Minor. There were associations for bakers, uh, bronze workers, uh, weavers, makers of pottery, dyers of cloth. That was a big business in the city of Thyatira. Now, case in point, Acts chapter 16, you remember we're introduced to a woman there by the name of Lydia, who was a seller of purple. The apostle Paul lead, leads her to faith in Jesus uh, in his ministry there in Philippi. Well, Acts chapter 16 says that Lydia was a seller of purple, and guess where she was from? She was from the city of Thyatira. And so the dye that produced the color purple was made from the root of a plant that grew in the valley where the city of Thyatira was. And so the cloth that was made from this purple dye was a major export of the city. So various trade guilds existed in this region and they were like trade unions. You think about what unions are today, but in ancient times, they were that much more important. And if you were a Christian living in the city of Thyatira 
It would have been very difficult to make a living if you did not belong to one of these trade guilds or trade associations. Because here's what membership in that guild meant. It meant you had to share in the social life and worship the patron deity of that particular guild. You want to be part of us? You've got to believe like us. You've got to act like us. You've got to conform to our pattern of living if you want to make a living here in the city of Thyatira. Now, does that sound familiar or what? Because essentially, this is the same pressure that's often exerted upon us by a culture, even in today's times. So every guild had its own god or goddess, and the guild required that honors be given to its particular deity. Without the God, there was no guild. Without the guild, there were no goods. And so you could imagine that believers in Thyatira had some very tough decisions to make because commitment to Jesus Christ often affected their livelihoods. Now, the church is under pressure. Compromise seemed to be in order. Accommodating to the ideas of the culture would make life more comfortable And so their compromise came in the form of a false teacher who had introduced ideas that were culturally acceptable, but the Lord of the church is going to point out the fact that they're spiritually unacceptable. So in his letter to the church, Jesus is addressing this issue of accommodating the spirit of the age. So there's several things that I want to point out to you here. There's just a picture of some ruins of the city of Thyatira there in the valley where it was located. Accommodating the spirit of the age. Now notice number one, the commendable works of the church. Just like the other letters, the Lord begins by mentioning something concerning his character, something that had been revealed uh, in chapter one, John's vision of the Lord of the church. And uh, there are some commendable things uh, for which Jesus is wanting to offer some praise uh, to this congregation A few things to consider here. The Lord was watching, and you'll notice that he introduces himself in terms that were very relevant to the situation of these believers there in the city. Uh, How is it that he refers to himself? Well, with eyes like a flame of fire, feet that were shining or glimmering like bronze. Again, this comes from chapter one. This is what John sees of the Lord of the church eyes of fire, Uh, this means he can penetrate, his eyes can see into the deepest recesses of the heart. There's nothing that escapes his all-seeing gaze. When the Lord looks upon my life, he looks beyond what's there on the surface. He looks far beyond what's there on the outside, and his all-seeing eye, his omniscient wisdom is looking upon my heart. That's true of me as an individual. It's also true of the local church. He's not impressed often by the things that people tend to be impressed with when they think about a church. The busyness of the church, the buildings of the church, the budgets of the church. All of that can be very uh, uh, impressing. But the Lord sees beyond that and he sees the actual integrity of the church. He sees into the heart of the church. He sees the collective witness and impact that that particular church is having or not having. 
And so he is the omniscient Christ and he scrutinizes every little thing about the church. So the Lord is watching. What is it that he sees when he looks into the church? Well, notice how their love really is an outstanding thing. He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service. Uh, The church had been made up of believers who were known for their love. They were known for their faith. They had been serving God in a difficult place. You think about what's said about the church at Ephesus. Unlike the Ephesian church that was decreasing in love, the church in Thyatira is actually increasing in love. And that love motivated them to, to action. They were no doubt feeding the hungry. You know, they were probably loading tractor trailers with supplies and taking them to needy towns nearby. That's the kind of thing that they were doing. They clothed the naked. Grace and compassion, these were the hallmarks of the church. And that's something that Jesus is commending the church for. You ought to make some comparisons between the church at Thyatira and the church at Ephesus mentioned earlier in the chapter. Ephesus was weak in the area of love. Yet, it had been strong in discernment. Discernment that judged false teaching, that distinguished truth from error. They were strong in discernment. Weak in love, strong in discernment. Well, Thyatira, the opposite's true. Here you have a a group that's strong in love, but they had been weak in discernment. And that weakness in discernment led them to embrace a false teaching. Which, by the way, you know that both extremes are to be avoided in the local church. On one hand, you have an unloving orthodoxy. You can have every doctrinal I dotted and every doctrinal T crossed and still be dead as a hammer, cold as a cucumber. On the other hand, the other extreme is is this gentle compromise where there is no doctrinal integrity, where there is no conviction, where truth has been lost all in the name of compassion. And often churches that are accommodating of unbiblical ideas, they appeal to love, they appeal to compassion, they emphasize good works to the exclusion of truth. And often doctrinal purity is ignored and social activity is prioritized. Warren Wiersbe says no amount of loving and sacrificial works could ever compensate for a tolerance of evil. So someone says, well, what's the balance? Well, the Apostle Paul mentions that balance in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where he says, speaking the truth in love. The church must be known for speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. So things were out of balance in Thyatira. They're being commended for the fact that they're a compassionate, loving congregation, but that compassion and that love was leading them to tolerate some things that really should have been dealt with because it was undermining the doctrinal integrity and purity of the church. Notice how the Lord also commends them over the fact that their labor is just increasing. They're they're hardworking. Uh, He commends their patient endurance and the fact that their latter works exceeded the first. In other words, Jesus is saying, your deeds lately are greater than they were at the first. You've rolled up your sleeves. You've been serving faithfully. That word service that's used there, the original language, it's the same word translated as deacon elsewhere in the New Testament. 
And it refers to a loving and compassionate way of serving other people. So Jesus is commending the church for service, for selfless, sacrificial service done in his name. And so it's important, I'm all for Bible study. We need to study God's word so that we might know God's word. God's word needs to be preached. God's word needs to be proclaimed. We ought to take advantage of every opportunity we have to be in Bible study, teaching. These are good things. However, we cannot be deficient when it comes to showing compassion, when it comes to serving, when it comes to selfless ministry done in the name of Jesus. In fact, what we learn from God's word ought to motivate us to selfless action as Christ's disciples. This is what James talks about in James chapter 2. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? But then he gives this example. If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and someone says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, James says, what does that profit? And he says, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead, it's worthless, it's lifeless. So real faith is something that will show up through selfless service in a believer's life. Which, by the way, you know that what we do for others is what we do for Jesus. Because that's what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about the king one day will say and answer, as surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these my brethren, you did it unto me. So when we serve selflessly in his name, we're serving others, but beyond that, as believers, we're serving the Lord. What we do for others is what we do for Jesus. So, so this is what the church is being commended for, which by the way, all of these are interrelated if you think about it. Love, faith, service, patient endurance. Love is something that leads to service because if you love God, you'll serve his people. You just won't be able to help it. Love for God will manifest itself in wanting to serve other people around you. It's a visible, tangible sign, an outward expression of a heart that's full of the love of God. This is something about the local church. I'll be honest. There's something about the local church that has a magnetic appeal to those who are believers. I believe you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. You can't stay away from the local assembly for a prolonged period of time because something's just going to be drawing you back. It's the life of God in you. The opposite then ought to be true. A person who says, I really don't want to be involved in any local church, but I love God. Well, the New Testament knows no such critter. Because it's only by love for the brethren that we know that we've truly passed from life unto death. And so faith, that leads to endurance because genuine faith perseveres. Faith keeps at it. It doesn't quit. All of this is true of the church in Thyatira. So here you have within this fellowship in the city of Thyatira, believers who love God, believers who serve God's people, believers who had faith in God's word, who were persevering. 
And to be sure, you know that as they loved God and as they loved other people, the church had experienced growth. Ray Steadman says this is the way that churches grow because people are always attracted by the reality of Christian love, the heartfelt compassion of Christian service, the stirring hope of Christian faith, and the challenging example of Christian perseverance. He said people who stand outside the church and see those kind of qualities being lived out in the name of Jesus, he said they're like hungry children standing outside the window of an ice cream shop with their noses pressed against the glass. And they earnestly desire what they see inside. And so we should ask ourselves the question, when people who don't know or worship or serve our God, when they look into the life of our fellowship, are they like hungry children with their noses pressed up to the glass when they're looking in and observing what they see in the life of our fellowship? It's an interesting question. But the message to this church in Thyatira tells us that works are important. Works have their rightful place. But whenever they're reversed in terms of priority... They can have lethal consequences because works must flow out of worship. And the word cannot be set aside. The word is the basis for our authority. It's the word of God that motivates us to such Christ-honoring works. Jesus always says come before he says go. He always says come and sit at my feet before he always says go and serve in my name. So this is the commendable action of the church. Now, notice the second thing. It's what I'm calling the compromising ways of the church. The Lord says this in verse 20, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She's teaching and she's seducing my servants. So despite all of their commendable actions, there was, there was a subtle cancer that was beginning to eat away at the church from the inside. The church was made up of those who are faithfully serving God, and yet at the same time, there's another group who had bought into the ideas of a false teacher, and the church was tolerating this false teaching by this false teacher. Well, who was it exactly that had been embraced within the church? Well, Jesus says, it's the woman Jezebel. Now, more than likely, this was not her literal name, but an indication of her character. You look at a list of popular baby names today, you'll find Noah and Jacob on the list for boys. You'll find Hannah and Grace on the list of popular names for girls. But you know, I probably am about 99.9% sure that you won't find a popular list of baby names with Jezebel as a recommendation for your daughter. I've yet to come across a Jezebel. Why is that? Listen, it's because from, I mean, from antiquity, the name Jezebel has been associated with immorality. Right? And, and what we know about Jezebel in the Old Testament, she was perhaps the most evil woman who's mentioned in the pages of Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Kings 16 tells us who Jezebel was in the Old Testament, you know she was the wife of Israel's king Ahab. And when the kingdom had been divided after the death of Solomon, you had a commercial alliance that had been established with the uh, Syrophoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. But once the kingdom was divided, all of that 
ended for Judah, the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom of Israel inherited the alliance with those cities since it was closer to those uh, Phoenician strongholds. And so it was a corrupt association. The ships of Phoenicia would dominate trade all throughout the Mediterranean. And so joining with Tyre and Sidon, trading with them meant riches for the northern kingdom of Israel. And so that meant an alliance with these cities. And to sort of bolster this alliance, King Ahab took a Phoenician princess as his wife because Jezebel's father was the king of Sidon. And so politically, economically, uh, this kind of led to economic growth, wealth, prosperity, luxury then followed in the wake of this alliance, which by the way, was condemned later on by a prophet named Amos. If you've been here on Sundays, we've been in Amos for a while. But how many of you know that sometimes what looks good on paper doesn't always play out the way we think? Something that might look good politically leads to disaster spiritually and that's exactly what happens with this unholy alliance between Ahab and Jezebel between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of the Sidonians. Because with trade with those Sidonians, the Phoenicians, came the Phoenician gods known as Baal and Ashtoreth. And so along with Ahab, uh, Jezebel introduced the worship of Baal to Israel. And so what you had then was religious pluralism at its finest as, as she encourages the people of Israel to accommodate these gods of Phoenicia. This then led to this syncretism where the worship of God was blended with the worship of Baal and it was a false religious system in idolatry and Jezebel encourages the people to conform to everything that God stood against. We're told there in 1 Kings that she imported 450 prophets of Baal who championed the cause of Baal throughout Israel. She also imported 400 additional prophets of Ashtoreth, which was Baal's cohort. Then she systematically sought to put to death all of the prophets of God. And so Baal worship then began to flourish in the cities of Israel. And it was this situation that the prophet Elijah confronts in 1 Kings chapter 18 there on Mount Carmel. You remember when all the people come together, God sent a drought through the prophet uh, Elijah. Elijah said, it's not going to rain until I give say so. You want to know why that was important? Because listen to me, Baal claimed to be the God of the storm. Baal claimed to be the Lord of the harvest. The Phoenicians claimed that it was Baal who sent rain and fertility on the land. Baal and Ashtoreth, and, and the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth was so perverse, so sexually immoral, and it was intended to sort of provoke the rains and to, to uh, cause a fertile harvest of crops. And so when Elijah steps on the scene and says, it's not going to rain until I give say so, this is God's judgment on the worship of Baal. And so things are drying up all over Israel. Creeks are drying up, rivers are drying up, fields are turning brown. All the while, the people are claiming to be able to worship the Lord of the storm. What kind of God is that? That's what Elijah confronts there on Mount Carmel. 
And so here's the thing. A break with Baal meant a break with the system of the Sidonians. A break with Baal meant a break with Jezebel, chief proponent of Baal worship in Israel. So Elijah calls the people to a point of decision. Now keep in mind, all of this is serving as the background and the context to what Jesus is dealing with here in the city of Thyatira. Because Jezebel in the Old Testament broke down all boundaries of moral separation with the world. It was Jezebel who seduced God's people into spiritual compromise. And something similar had been happening there in the city of Thyatira. So this person whom Jesus calls Jezebel in the city of Thyatira, more than likely she was soliciting the people uh, to buy in to this form of false teaching that made sexual immorality okay, that made idolatry okay. Perhaps she was encouraging their participation in the trade guilds in the city so as not to lose their livelihood. Maybe it was an early form of Gnosticism which said it doesn't matter what you do with your body just so long as things are okay with your spirit. And so there were some who bought into this kind of false teaching and it led to a corruption of the witness of the church and Jesus is dealing with it in the strongest of terms. So what was the actual doctrine that was being introduced or false teaching being introduced by this false teacher? The Lord says that she was teaching and seducing his servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It was an accommodation to the immoral spirit of the culture. It was a seductive ideology that seemed to make a legitimate case for gratifying the desires of the flesh. It minimized personal holiness. It minimized the truth of God's word. And you know something, that same kind of mindset still threatens the church, even today, because it's always enticing and tempting to justify immorality in the name of grace. False teachers always want to appeal to the freedom that we have in Christ to give way to a license for sin. Paul deals with this in Romans 6, 7, and 8, doesn't he? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. And anyone who comes along and says, it really doesn't matter how you live, live however you want to, seek to uh, justify or gratify every desire of your flesh that you have in the name of grace and uses grace as an excuse, that person does not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel changes a person on the ins- from the inside out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? Philippians chapter 3, many walk of whom I've told you often and even tell you weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So this was the kind of error that the people in Thyatira were falling prey to. And then notice what could be expected. And I'm going to tell you something. You'll find some of the strongest words of rebuke in any of these letters to the churches found right here in these verses. And Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. 
And so notice the judgment that she'll experience as the result. As the Lord says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation. Those who buy into her lies, unless they repent. Now the thing is, it's possible that some of these who were being led astray were genuine believers who just simply lacked discernment. And it's easy for those that may be new in the faith to buy into ideas that may not necessarily be true, which is why discipleship is so very important. But more than likely, Jezebel and her children referred to here, these are false believers attempting to plant seeds of deception. And thereby, it perhaps was a tactic of the evil one to want to try to destroy the witness of the church and destroy the church altogether. Which, by the way, Satan has always attempted to sow tares among the wheat. Every local church deals with this kind of thing. Not just now, but it's been that way since post-Pentecost. Tares among wheat. You know what? Wheat and tares... In that metaphor that Jesus uses, tares are so deceptive because from a distance they look so much like the real thing. But upon close examination, a tare is nothing more than a weed. It's not legitimate wheat. And so oftentimes, false believers will attach themselves to the local church And from a distance, they look like the real thing. They talk like the real thing. But it becomes evident that they don't possess the character of Christ and the spirit of Christ. But make make no mistake about it, the Lord is looking into the heart. And so the the, the writers of the New Testament frequently warn us against this, 2 Peter chapter 2, false prophets, they arose among the people in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers who arise among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them. 1 John chapter 2, these went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they're not of us. Jude Verse 4, certain men have crept in unawares who long ago were designated for such condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God and turn it into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, So the Lord says he's going to deal with these false teachers and their offspring and by doing so, all of the churches are going to come to know that he's the one who searches the mind and the heart. Verse 23, in fact, (laughs) the literal translation there that's used, it's, it's the kidneys, the mind and the kidneys. Whereas we tell someone, I love you with all my heart, in those days, here's how they would have made that statement, I love you with all my kidneys. Guarantee you won't find that on a Hallmark card anywhere come Valentine's Day. But the idea is with all, from the deepest part of me, I love you. That's what we say when we say I love you with all my heart. When Jesus says I'm the one who searches the mind and the heart, he's saying I I look into the depths of your soul. I'm looking upon who you really are and I know you. 
So what's the corrective wisdom then for the church? What's the answer? What does the Lord tell the church in Thyatira to do about this situation, this prophetess Jezebel who's teaching false doctrine, leading people astray? Well, to be sure, there were those in the church who had not got caught up with this particular spirit. They had remained faithful to the Lord. A remnant of believers within the church who had not become corrupted. They had not bought into the teaching what some called the deep things of Satan. Jesus says he's not going to lay upon them any other burden. The idea is those who followed this figure, they thought that such new doctrine was leading them to new heights when in reality it was taking them into the depths of demonic stronghold. And so it always is with false teaching. So you've got here an instruction to be faithful. The Lord says in verse 25, he says, hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, don't surrender any doctrinal ground. Don't abandon the faith that's been delivered once for all to the saints. Don't add to, don't take away from what you've been entrusted with. Instead, hold on to what you've been given. Never let it go, even when the world around you is putting you under the squeeze, when it's putting pressure upon you, when society is threatened to push you out, when it's affecting your livelihood, when it hits you in the pocketbook. Don't back down. Don't give up any ground. Don't surrender the truth of God's word. Reminds me of what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. He says, because the time is coming when people, they're not going to endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And my, my, aren't we living in that time? So the fact that these believers are instructed to hold fast implies that it's not going to be easy. If it were easy, you wouldn't have to hold fast There are forces at work in the world to pressure them, to coerce them into error. Every day would be a battle in which they were to be diligent not to give up any ground. And you know what? It was true for them. It's true for us. You know, every day is a battle in your life when it comes to what you believe, how you live, what you value. Because the world around us, y'all, is constantly telling us what to believe and how to behave and how to live and what to value. And there are a variety of mediums. There are, there are a multiplicity of means and messages that bombard us every day from powerful figures in the media to peer pressure that's exerted upon us through the form of social media, work associates. And there's constant pressure put right here on our minds. That's why the scripture says in Romans 12, don't be conformed Don't be patterned after this world around, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. God's word, as it washes over you, transforms you. And part of loving God with all that we are involves loving him with our mind. How do you love him with your mind? I mean, how how well 
founded and grounded in the faith are you? So refusal to accommodate the spirit of the age, this would be a difficult position for them to maintain. But they had to hold their ground. That's what the Lord tells the church. But he gives them a promise. And I love how he deals with this issue in Thyatira because he begins by praising them for something. I mean, he takes them to the woodshed in the middle part of the letter. Let's just be honest. But then he ends with a wonderful promise. Kind of uses the sandwich method. <laughs> you ever had to criticize anybody for something? And they'll tell you, you know, the way you do that, use the sandwich method. Build them up. Take them to the woodshed. Then build them up again. And that's what the Lord's doing here. He's given them incentive for the future. Look at what he says there in verse 26. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I'm going to give authority over the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. This is a reference back to Psalm 2. It's a promise that we're going to rule with Christ in his kingdom. That's what we have to look forward to as believers. Verse 28, he says, I'll give them the morning star. This is reference to the dawning of a new day, a bright future that belongs to every child of God. So yeah, the world may push you to the fringe. People may withdraw from you. Our livelihoods may be impacted because of what we believe in terms of our faith. But you know something? This world is not our home, is it? We're pilgrims, and we've got to get back to a pilgrim theology because we're looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God, and the Lord promises that there's a brighter day for the children of God. Well, let me leave you with this, and then we'll pray, but Dr. Chuck Swindoll in his insights, he, he gives three points by way of application that I think is so very helpful concerning this letter to the church at Thyatira. He says, number one, he says, big problems can occur in small places. Big problems can occur in small places. And again, the size of the church doesn't matter to the Lord of the church. It's the integrity of the church that he's looking upon. And then he says this, bad teaching can come from gifted people. And one thing we've got to be on guard against is just because someone has a particular charisma does not necessarily mean that every word that person speaks is true and worth building your life upon. And there certainly are plenty of charismatic, gifted teachers who have wide audiences and boast of big platforms. But it's important we realize that bad teaching can come from very gifted, gifted people. And often that is the mechanism that Satan loves to use. That was an issue that was being dealt with in the city of Corinth. The Apostle Paul says, listen, why in the world are y'all getting so caught up with personalities in the church? Well, we follow this guy. We follow that guy. I'm in this guy's corner. I'm in that guy's corner. And Paul says, listen, when I come, I don't know if I'm going to show up. I might just show up with a rod. That's what he says. I'm going to deal with y'all when I show up. 
and it won't be pretty. Because it's not about the personality. And then one last thing he says, uh, tolerance of bad teaching has no place in the church. It was Jesus who said, you shall know the truth, and it's the truth that will set you free. Amen? Let's stand for prayer tonight. I don't know what it does for you in your spirit to be reminded of the truth that the Lord is looking into our situation with eyes like a flaming fire, feet of burnished bronze that speaks of his omniscience and his omnipotence, and he is the Lord. And Father, as we pray tonight, we're so thankful for the truth of your word. And Lord, what a blessing it is to be able to walk through your word line upon line, precept upon precept. And these letters to the seven churches are so very practical and so very relevant, Lord, with where we're living. And Lord, thank you for the reminder that it's not the size of the church that matters to the Lord of the church, but it's the integrity of the church. And Lord, we want to be faithful We want to stand upon the truth of your word, but Lord, we want to speak the truth in love. And it's only by your spirit at work in us and through us that that balance will be maintained. Jesus was full of grace and truth. May we as his people be known for grace and truth, even when it means the world around us doesn't understand Lord, may they see something totally different to the way that we live. When all the world around us seems to be losing its mind, Lord, may they see something about the calm, steady confidence of the people of God. When there's so much animosity being leveled, may they see something about our compassionate response We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us just like the Lord told us to. And in this way, Lord, your church will be a bright witness to a world in darkness. So, Lord, throughout the remainder of the week, we ask you to give us opportunity to be that light. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.